on Sagittarian matters, poetry, quarantine, advice, and more with my very special guest, Eileen Miles. Stay tuned. esteemed Sagittarius, a poet, novelist, performer, and an art journalist. Their 20 books include Cool For You, I Must Be Living Twice, Chelsea Girls, Afterglow, and more. You can find Eileen on Instagram and at EileenMiles.com. Now please enjoy my talk with a very special friend to the show, Eileen Miles. Eileen Miles, welcome back to Sagittarian Matters. Nicole J. Georges, hi. Hi, it's nice to see you. You're in Marfa, Texas. Yeah, it's great to see you in Los Angeles. Um, I'm here with producer Ponyo in the Sagittarian Matters social distancing studio. And we've. I'm just so excited to talk to you because a lot's changed. Last time we talked, we were in Provincetown. We were right. in your surf shack in Provincetown, talking about that beautiful um, gorilla figurine that you had. Oh, my God, it's here. He came with you? Oh, yeah, always, always comes with me. Yeah. And now a lot's changed. So how are you holding up slash how are you wrapping your brain around everything that's happening right now? Wow. I feel like um, I feel like it is such a atomized existence. Like, I feel like Every single day is so radically different from every other day, even though it's completely the same. And I just feel like, I mean, the interior weather is just like, I think, oh, I've got it. Get up in the morning and meditate and then take honey for a walk, then write. Like, that's it. And the next day I'm like, I don't feel that way. Um, I want to, I mean, I just feel like I keep being like a different being chemically every single day. And I, in a way, I feel like I'm, I'm having to form kind of a modular idea about existence. Like, I like to, I like to walk my dog. I like to exercise. I like to eat. I like to write. I like to meditate. Um, I have some Zoom meetings with friends. I have, you know, I have like about a bunch of activities. And so, um, if I, I, I move the order around every day, and if I don't get to everything every day, like watching TV shows, watching movies, um, it's sort of like I'm just having to be a lot more freeform than I'm comfortable with because I feel I really feel like the very thing of me changes every day. And part of it is I think it's the constriction and the reduction of possibilities. So I just feel like I keep rebelling. Like chemically, I don't want to do that. I'm very tantrumy, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so I'm just having to, in fact, the good thing is that I've discovered that if I have an actual work assignment or a deadline, I'm really happy because I can either procrastinate and do other things against it, or I can do it. And then when I finish it, I feel like an amazing person. And then I can be really slothful for a day because I'm in a state of goodness and so it's very weird. It's sort of like I'm much more clinging to like accomplishment and rejecting it as a form than than usual. Yeah. 
Has has there ever been a moment in your life that felt like this moment before? Um, I think when I first stopped drinking and taking drugs, I would say that. I think when I first moved to New York, um, I think, yeah, I think maybe maybe the first breakup of my life. I think, I mean, I think maybe when I went to Europe in my early 20s and I thought that it was going to be so radically different and I was going to be somebody different there. And I realized I was still a depressed 21, 22-year-old. So, yeah, I think any kind of um, time when either I went someplace expecting something and the shape was not there or I was intrinsically shapeless. Well, so have you actually had time to read? I think only in the past couple of days have I tried to retrain myself to read. Um, reading's been great, actually. But I mean, I just, I do, I, I will admit, though, that sometimes I'm, I'm reading and I have to read the same sentence over and over again, you know. But, um, but yeah, reading's been good. And I've been reading a lot of books. And that's been really great. Um, I finished the most pathetic book in the world today. It was called um, Pere Gorio by Balzac. And it was this really sad story about a rooming house and this man that lived in a rooming house and a young it's in Paris in the 19th century. And there was a young romantic man who was newly in Paris and became swayed by wealth and glory. And, you know, it was like, it was one of those kind of moral tales and it it was very gossipy and trashy. Mm. And and, um, I'm very into the 19th century for some reason right now, it seems like the place. So, um, so I've been kind of knocking back. I met, I found a, um, there's a, um, Mexican-American novelist. I think she's a Mexican, actually, Carmen Belosa. And I've started reading her. Do you know her name? Mm-hmm. Do you know her? Um, because the thing with her is that I've discovered the thing I love about novels. Like, I'm very into the Middle East right now. And I discovered that I can read novels about Lebanon and Palestine and, and, and Jordan and get the thing I want more than even nonfiction, you know, by novels, like somebody's done the research or else they are the research, you know? So, um, before the book, before the bookstore closed, I went to the Marfa book company and there was this book there called the theft of Texas. And it was a novel by Carmen Belosa about 19th century border, um, you know, Mexicans, Americans, Indians, and really great, 19th century novel. So suddenly I was like, and we're the same age, Carmen and I. I think I've met her. Um, and my friend Tom, who lives in Los Angeles, who's a, um, he's like a, a, an activist priest. He said that he had dinner with her in Mexico City. So I feel like we're close, but I'm, I'm slowly reading her books and I'm very excited about her work. That's a couple of people actually asked if you had any recommendations of things you've been reading or things or poetry that you recommended. So I feel like we're already kind of knocking the advice questions out of the park. Yeah, I think the the book that people of Carmen's that people should read is a small novel called Before. And it's a female coming of age novel and it's thin and it's dreamlike and trippy. And it's really maybe the best coming of age novel I ever read by, by a woman. You know, I love it. So oh, I, I would. That. Have you yeah. written any poems? Is that what you've been writing? Um, I'm working on a novel, but I can't tell. I mean, this novel is getting so loosey goosey and so crazy. Like I just keep getting new ideas about where this novel is going, and so I don't know what to make of what it is. But I am I am writing that, and um, there was like a week or so where I was writing poems, and I was happy because I hadn't been writing poems. So that's fun. 
Do you have anything you would like to read on the podcast? Um, I do. And let me see if I can pick the right one. It's called Howl. A refrigerator makes a lot of sound. So does a bird. People are always talking full of love and pain. We started a fund and the dogs are needing some money and I don't know how to do it. And I'll learn from one of them. Tom's blue shirt and glasses are perfect. My t-shirt is good. My pen works. I breathe. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let me see if I can find one other little one. This little one, this might be a mess, but okay. I was driving to the Zoom meeting, and I dreamed I saw your blonde head in the darkness of a car at the intersection. It was an older woman, but you're younger, born in April, not May or November. You're a fury, sort, the explosive sort, born to lead me to what? My doom, oh, comet, you stay there. Let me love you here. Oh, my God, I'm loving these. I don't even know how to react via Zoom. I know, I know, it's so crazy. Here. And we're all trying to control the microphone. And so we don't get the normal signals we get, like people like or don't like it. And you think, I'm a clown, I'm a fool. No, you know? I, I like, I like all. Yeah, but you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, do you ever have that moment of self-consciousness where you're like, I'm just speaking in my room at like a, just like a glowing thing. Yeah, like it might yeah. not actually be anything. Right, right. What it reminds me of, the weirdest experience, like when you do poetry readings or any kind of reading, is when you're reading to a live audience, but in fact, you're being recorded for, you're also going to radio. And so the people, the radio people can't see what's happening in front of you. And so somebody in front of you could be saying, hurry up, hurry up. We've got to get out of here. But you can't respond to that because the people on the radio, like there's a way in which you're like in two places at once and it feels very confusing and, you know, physical. So I think the Zoom thing feels like that, but with only being in one place. Do you have one more poem you can read for us? Um, I have a really crazy one that's little that I just wrote. Okay, this one, I think I, I don't even exactly know what this one means, but I think I really like it. It's called Saturday. Somebody's bird enhances the Zoom meeting. And right here, my dog barks hard and deep. Where are my birds, my sirens, the ding when somebody speaks and David whacks on his new office? Sweet birds, who or what am I interested in? What do I get? I imagine a clear, empty space when I've written you and said what I've done. What would I write about when whose sounds gurgling you is what? <laughs> what? Wait a second. What would I write about? When who sounds gurgling, you is what. Oh, okay. What would I write about when who sounds gurgling, you is what. Yeah, I got to slow it down so much I can't explain it, but that's just what it is right now. I love it. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. I feel like I, I, if, I if we were there, you'd be able to tell. I love it. <laughs> I feel so lucky I get to have these poems from you that also mention the current occasions of the day, like Zoom. Oh, my God. It's sort of like, I mean, I think it is my secret cheating because when you're on a Zoom thing, you can always write a poem. It's really funny. I feel like you're not supposed to be doing that somehow, but it's really, it's like a great, because it is like that thing of being in several places at once. And it's sort of like the only way to be at home is to kind of 
be the person who's talking about being in all the places, you know, which to me is a very poem feeling or, you know. I, I draw while I'm in meetings a mm-hmm. lot of times, so I get that feeling. Yeah. It's hard for me. So remember when I was at that cartoon college? I do. They have a pro-doodle policy. And I think it would really freak people out when people would come to be a guest speaker and no one would be looking at them because everyone would be listening really hard but sketching while it was happening oh, or like sketching that. them even. And so people would get this weird feeling of like, who are all these nerds that won't even look at me while I like, are they all paying attention to me? Maybe they're not paying attention, but we were paying a different kind of like full body attention. And now when I'm in like any kind of Zoom meeting and I'm looking down drawing, I always hope people don't think that I'm ignoring them because I'm actually right. metabolizing it in such a different way. Oh, I, I mean, I love what you're describing. And I love the idea of a pro doodle policy is the coolest, funniest, best thing I've ever heard about. Yeah, I had to really get used to it as an instructor because you do get the feeling kind of like on a Zoom call when you have that consciousness where you're like, is this anything? Yeah, like I'm speaking yeah, in yeah. front of you guys, but is anything happening? Yeah, I've had um, I've had pro poetry workshops where I've had I've used nude models because I thought like our class does that, so why shouldn't we have a nude too? Mm-hmm. And the the thing that the the women who pose and a man we had a man once too, and the thing they all say is that they're used to people drawing at them, but they're not used to people writing, and it made them really uncomfortable. Interesting. Yeah, it really was. It was not. It was a different thing because it felt secret. Like, you don't know what people are thinking because you can see what they're drawing. Oh, that's so interesting. And there might be more from their interior that's, like, commingling with your image than there is if they're just drawing what they're seeing. Exactly. Exactly. So people might be judging. Today's episode is brought to you by Emily Helmus, Jess Fialco, Andrea Ginsberg, Whitney Gecker, Mary Pinson, Jill Soloway, Shoshana Ruth Wechter, and Christy Herod. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, especially producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $5 million, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. Or, this just in, he's got Venmo. Hell Books on Venmo. That's H-E double hockey sticks books. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it, too. Don't be scared. That's just Ponyo's voice. Should we get to some advice questions? Oh, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, the first one is very much just of the times. Okay. Dear Eileen and Sagittarian Matters, I have a timely question for you. I have a roommate who keeps breaking quarantine to see his date who also lives in a home with roommates, some of whom still leave the house to go to work. I feel unsafe in my own home, and my roommate thus far refuses to stop going to the bone zone. Help! What do I do? Signed, collapsing over COVID in Kentucky. Wow. I think that, I think that you have to form a ritual with your room. I think you can't c- control your roommate, I think. And so I think you have to form a ritual that makes both of you comfortable. Like, I think when your roommate comes in, you have to attend to them washing and doing, I mean, whatever it is, at whatever level you can both agree on, it's a negotiation. But I think you have to think of three or four things that they can do to make you feel that the world is left outside the door when they come into the space. Yeah. 
I think, yeah, you can't control your roommate. You can say your opinion once, and more than that, it's you trying to manipulate the situation when they obviously yeah. already heard you. If you end up needing to make a different choice for yourself, like staying somewhere else or asking them to stay at the girlfriend's house or something, that aside from the attending to their washing and, like, you know, debugging their clothes and whatever, that's kind of all all you have. Yeah. God, it feels like such a um, an out-of-control um, set of conditions. That seems really hard. I mean, it's sort of like a lot of us are talking about how weird it is just to be completely alone, but weirder still to not be alone with people that say aren't your intimate. I feel very grateful to not live in a house with roommates and to have no small children. Oh, yeah. I would think having kids would be really, I mean, unless you enjoy homeschooling, you know? Even then, it's just 24-7 of kids and then just, ugh, I I'm very, feel very happy that it's just yeah. me and producer Ponyo, who's pretty quiet right. for the most part. Okay. Dear Eileen and Sagittarian Matters, this is a long question. I'm a 25-year-old artist. I work hard and dream very big. Though I know I will keep going no matter what, sometimes I feel a pit of dread when wondering if anyone will ever care about what I'm doing on a larger scale, especially because a lot of my work and organizing is based around doing things outside the dominant high art world and is radical and anti-institution in a lot of ways. I guess I am seeking to draw wisdom from the experience of someone who has already gone through this. Where were you at when you were 25? What did you tell yourself about where you were headed? What advice would you give me based on your own experience? Thank you. Wow. Huh. Um, when I was in tw 25, <clears throat> I think I was in my second year of living in New York. I think I turned 25 the year I moved to New York. Um, and so I think the year, I think the year was a little, it was a little bit, um, scary and vague because I had, I grew up in Boston and I had moved to, oh, I had gone off to Europe for like six months hitchhiking and I thought that was going to be the life changing experience and it wasn't. And then I decided, then I came back to Boston for a year and then I went to um, San Francisco and I thought I needed to get off the East Coast. And instead of it being great, I was having kind of a meltdown, nervous breakdown in San Francisco and it was not good at all and it was very confusing. And I just didn't know who I was and it didn't. And so I came back to Boston again. So the thing about 25 was when I got to New York, I had already worn out all my farewell going away parties in Boston. My friends were over me leaving and coming back. And so it seemed like New York was like the end of the world. Like I was in the last place. But the thing that was so great about the last place was for me, was the last place turned out to be the first place. You know, like instead of my life ending, my life was beginning, you know. And I think that when one feels despair, especially when you're young, it's like it's because it's because you see something about where you are as being kind of terminal. And the thing that's really interesting from the from the position of years later was that was just the beginning. That was the first step. It's sort of like that terminal feeling was a weird encounter with freedom you know because the thing is you don't know where this story is going you know and it's like i mean there's so many beautiful things about working on time and doing things i mean the fact that your work is you don't know where your work is going when you make something you don't know who will read it especially if you're in that sort of obscure alternative universe rather than being in a mainstream world where 
you have a whole industry of people telling you where it's going and what they want it to do and everything. When 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 you're when what you're doing is little and kind of indie, it's sort of like anybody could be picking this up up anywhere at any time. There's no you don't know the the only thing you'd assume is the work will not be entirely destroyed. And the part that survives you have no control over. So there's just a beautiful way in which when you're young and you're making stuff, it's almost like you're dropping your efforts into the water and it's just floating away and and know that somebody is going to pick it up at some point in time. The thing is, you just don't know when. So you have to develop this this thing in you that just trusts that the message is being carried. And um, beyond that part, your only business is to make the message and release it. And the part beyond that is not your business. You know, it's sort of like, that's the universe's business. That's the other smart, cool, political art people's business. That's, you know, there's so many people involved at that point, even family members, you know, even lovers and friends, everybody is distributing your work in all these different ways. And the other thing that's really interesting is that um, other people will complete your work. And you don't know who those people are either. Like, it's like you make something and you let go of it and um, it goes into somebody else's hands and they pick it up and it becomes part of their work. And then they add on to it, you know, like other people, history, time, your work is being completed in all these cool, radical ways. Nobody gets to finish their work. You know, no matter how much something is done, it's not done because it's going to shake somebody in a particular way. And they're going to take it to some new place. So it's just like you really, I think the, I think the most exciting thing to know at 25 is that your work is really beyond you, you know. And it's just like a lot of people are carrying it on now and later and um, intimate people and people you'll never meet, you know. And um, just it's just like the future of your communications is not your business. But you have to just, you have to keep making and building and releasing and not, and not feeling like this is the end of the story, no matter how bad you feel, because the bad feeling is just like, it just blocks your signals. It's like, have the bad feeling, know you feel bad, and then and then um, just throw it in the trash like you do a, a, a stupid document on your computer and just like, and then carry the message out in some fashion, you know? Yeah. Do you ever, sometimes I have the conversation with myself where anxiety about something creeps in and I get to be like, okay, I heard you. And now you get to just chill for a minute. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because anxiety is part of the structure. Anxiety is why you do it in the first place, because you're afraid that this is it, you know? And so you feel anxious. And so you, you duplicate yourself, you duplicate something, you know? Oh my God. I have horcruxes all over the world. I really you have, you have what? Horcruxes. It's a thing from Harry Potter where an evil wizard will break his soul apart and hide the pieces so that he can never fully be killed. Oh wow. And so he'll oh, wow. it, they're very precious and so he'll yeah. hide the pieces. I mean most people only do it once. It's, it's very painful to do it to break your soul into pieces. But like the the I'm really nerding out on you. But like the worst bad guy from the Harry Potter yeah. world Voldemort Sorry, I said his name. Um, he's hidden like seven horcruxes in these crazy places around the world, like, you know, in the bottom of a cursed lake inside a vessel of blah, blah, blah. And you have to like go through all these demons to even get to the lake. And if you touch the water, you start decomposing. I mean, it's a really big deal. Anyway, I feel that I have horcruxes 
all around the world from these things. I love that. And literally, you probably have put zines and things you've made in really funny places, too. Oh, absolutely. You know, I love to leave stuff, you know, whether whether either whether I I mean, I did that when I was young, but I do it now some too. I just if I'm staying in some guest house someplace and I don't like the collection of books on the bookshelf, I leave my book there, you know, and I'll think this is fun. I get a weird thing like with guest books where I feel like my guest book entry is better than anyone else's guest book entry because it's illustrated. <laughs> uh, oh, that's amazing. Wow, that's incredible. And, you know, I don't know if other people think about it in such a competitive way. <laughs> That's really great. Speaking of competitive, I think I told you I pulled a hamstring doing aerobics in my own home, being competitive with oh. myself. Wow. <laughs> I just have a lot of energy. I know. I know. And energy just makes more energy and then it makes injury. <laughs> That's what's no. happened for me. Mm. Um, here's a silly question. Dear Sagittarian Matters and Eileen. What are some good conversational tips for when an acquaintance constantly drops thinly veiled gossip every time you try to chat with her? Like you don't want to cut her out because she's a regular at your main morning meeting and it would just be way too awkward. But every time you try and get in there for a brisk, hi, how are you doing? And end up, you're end, you end up feeling like you're silently co-signing her bitter dirt dishing. Mm. Correlated sub-query, what are some good tips for the guilt I feel when I have more boundaries on someone than they want? Well, I want to break it and say a boundary is for you. It's not for them. So uh-huh, they don't, uh-huh. it's your boundary, not their boundary. They don't need to like it. It just is your boundary. Right, right. I mean, you could be really endlessly irritating with them. And when they tell you something really bad about somebody, go into a whole thing about how you love that person, how awesome they, is, they are, and this incredible thing that they do. You can kind of keep defeating their bad energy by creating, even if it's not true. You know, it's sort of like, I mean, like we all have to do those things somehow to get over people that we can't stand. We'll like try and look for things about them that somehow or other um, make us ourselves a little bit comfortable. So I think I think you should sort of try and horrify them with good vibes. I think that and I think they will get the idea at some point and stop dropping, you know, hate bombs on you about people. If you have an advice question for Sagittarian Matters, call or text our advice hotline, 971-361-9998. Leave a message. We might answer your question on the air, and we promise not to answer the phone. That is a Sagittarian promise that you can take all the way to the bank. I think everybody is an artist. Do you? I don't know if everybody... I think everybody could be an artist. But for me, I think... It could be that I'm a Luddite, but I feel like social media is burning up a lot of my like self-expression value. I think so too. Because it's scratching that itch, but in a way that is feels like nothing. It feels so meaningless. Yeah, no, I think it's true. And and yet I I actually kind of love social media still. Same. Even you know? Like sometimes I just realize, but what I really want to do is spend a half hour or an hour looking at Twitter and Instagram. Well, I have a question that's back in line with your interior, which is. <laughs> okay, good, good. We'll go back there. Dear yeah. Eileen in Sagittarian Matters, uh, how has your concentration been during quarantine in relation to reading and writing? Wow. Um, I don't know. Shattered feels too harsh. 
but um, very watery, very watery. I mean, I think I've never had much of a tendency to be reading a lot of books at the same time. And yet I'm kind of, I, I, I think just before quarantine, I started to go the opposite way. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. I have about four different books going. And now I have like five and, um, and I'm starting to like, try, I'm trying to make there be a system where I keep one outside and I keep one next to the bed and I keep, you know, I read them at different times, but even, but quarantine just does not seem to serve any needs for anything to be static. And so even those orderly things, like I'm reading, I'm reading the Quran really slowly mm-hmm. and I lost the Quran. I was like, where's the Quran? The Quran was like gone for a week and a half. And suddenly I found the Quran today and I was happy to put the Quran back. But interestingly, I think I had just finished another book this afternoon. And so, um, Maybe it just it hopped in because there was room. So I don't know. I just feel like I'm very I'm very watery. And same with writing. I just feel like I mean I have been going um, for a few months, thinking, God, I don't think I'm writing any poems. And that's just part of being a poet for me. Is you suddenly notice you're not writing poems, and it usually immediately precedes writing a poem. You know. And um, but I was working pretty diligently on this novel. And then I suddenly just lost track of that and I didn't know what I was doing. Anyway, I just kind of, I fell into this cave and I found that there was poetry there. And so that was good for about, well, I was going to say a week, but I think it's still secretly happening. I feel like, especially in Zoom meetings, I feel like if I'm, if I'm um, with people in an electronic way, I just feel like it, I need to stabilize in some way. And I think I find that a poem does that for me. So I don't know. I have one friend um, and she's a new friend because I, she asked me like, like two days before her book was coming out, would she, would I blurb it? And I was like, whoa, you know? And then I, and then I looked at the, and her letter was so great and so kind of warm and intense and just like chaotic in a really good way. And she was queer. And, um, and so I looked at her book and it was, it was called, um, the undocumented American. Um, actually, I always fuck up her title, but it's it's the undocumented Americans. Yes, and her name is Carla Carnejo um, Villa Vincencio, and her book is so good. And she's having an amazing moment because it's the book we need. I mean, and I think a lot of books could. I mean, I, I think the question about this moment is: Does how does the book? perform in relationship to the pandemic you know and i think that like carla's book it's so beautiful like i learned that like both her her parents are undocumented and so after 9-11 her dad was a cab driver and after 9-11 um giuliani took away the driver's licenses of all undocumented people in new york city so instantly her dad had no way of making a living and he's my age so i mean i was how old was I at 9-11-50? And um, he's had to go work in kitchens, you know, as some, you know, Ecuadorian guy whose English was so, so, you know, it's just like, so it's just like her book is so great because it really is telling the story of the people who are on the front line right now. And it just happened to come out at this moment. And so she's like really out there writing about COVID, writing about undocumented people. And it's such a good book. So I really want to plug Carla's book because I adore her and I, I love her writing and she's smart and queer and cool and um, political. I love that. Eileen, yeah. do you have any last anything, Sagittarian adventures, 
Anything that's happened lately with your dog? Highlights, lowlights, anything at all? Um, I think my greatest daily sanitarian adventures are about my dog's awareness of every horse and Martha and her need to go and visit them almost on a daily basis. It's really funny. It's like it's as unmanageable and as um, uncontrollable as the virus. Like I take Honey for a walk and suddenly we're going left. And I'm like, oh, why are we going left? And we're going down this down onto a street called Waco. And suddenly there it is. There's a horse and a goat in the yard. And she knows she has an animal map of Marfa. Because this is so crazy. Like she's a dog from the Bronx, like a stray from the Bronx who lives in West Texas most of the time. And she is completely in love with large animals. Cows, bulls, horses, goats, not too, not too much, you know, but horses, incredible. And she just, she gets to them and they love her too. It's kind of like a trans animal thing, you know, because it's sort of like they'll, she'll look at them and they'll be in the middle of the field and they will come and then they will get nose to nose with her and they'll sniff her and they'll try and figure out what she is, you know, because it's just whatever she is, is so attra- as attractive to them as, as, as they are to her. And it's just, it's awesome. And I, I have to surrender the, the shape of the walk. And even when we get there, I just, if I don't give her 15 or 20 minutes to just ogle these animals, she just, I have to like, physically drag her away even at what, whatever point at any point i have to drag her away because she just can't get enough of horses you know well, i remember you came on the show and told us about when she ran away and you left a pair of your shorts outside or something and right, she was right, right. found in a herd of cows yeah 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 with bulls in fact she was herding them yeah so it's just like yeah she's still I, I don't know why that's what i want to share with the world but it's so completely beautiful um animals together and an animal in love with other animals you know so that's my i guess that's my message for today we we must love eh (laughs) eileen thank you for coming on the podcast again yeah it's fun thank you for having me sagittarian matters is produced by chris sutton with assistance by panyo george's our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.